Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books and Religion. I'm your host, Christian Peterson. Each program, we choose a new book that is especially interesting, and we chat with the author about that book. Today, I had the pleasure of talking with Justin McDaniel about his wonderful new book, The Lovelorn Ghost and the Magical Monk, Practicing Buddhism in Modern Thailand. When most people think of Buddhism, they begin to imagine a lone monk in the forest or possibly a serene rock garden. The world of ghosts, amulets, and magic are usually far from their mind. They may even feel some aversion to the notion that the meditative calm of monks from the East could have anything to do with these superstitious ideas and practices. Justin McDaniel, Associate Professor of the Department of Religious Studies at the University of Pennsylvania, challenges many of these preconceived ideas about what constitutes the substance of modern Buddhism in Thailand. In his new book, McDaniel begins his journey of contemporary Buddhism at one of the regular funerals for our lovelorn ghosts. Despite the compelling nature of this scene, as a skilled linguist and practicing scholar monk for many years, McDaniels never imagined that he would be examining the supernatural world of ghost stories. However, after living in Thailand for several years as an academic and practitioner, he realized that the specter of modern Thai Buddhist practices and beliefs would not leave him alone. Instead of looking for Buddhism, He let Buddhists tell, show, describe, and recount what they do, chant, hold, and value. And it is this portrait of Thai Buddhism that is truly valuable in the book. McDaniel offers an in-depth analysis of biographies, hagiographies, films, statues, amulets, murals, texts, magic, chants, and photographs in the co-production of religious knowledge in Thai Buddhism. While the book is a key contribution to Thai, Theravada, and modern Buddhist studies, it is also valuable for the study of religion more generally. McDaniel's approach provides a template for what he calls the pragmatic sociological study of cultural repertoires, which examines what a particular person carries, recites, and respects, how they do something, how they say they do something, and the material and social context they do with it. This allows us, as researchers, to unshackle our study from the expectations of certain terminology. He also problematizes a number of key categories, such as magic, cult, localization, folk, popular, syncretism, hybridity, and vernacularization, by demonstrating their limited usefulness when attempting to describe a Thai monastery, a shrine, liturgy, or ritual. These innovative moves in methodology should be motivational to others in the field more generally. Without further ado, here's my interview with Justin McDaniel. Today we're talking to Justin McDaniel, a professor of religious studies at the University of Pennsylvania, about his new book, The Lovelorn Ghost and the Magical Monk, Practicing Buddhism in Modern Thailand. Um, and while this is a, a great book in Buddhist studies, uh, it really helps us examine a lot of the categories we use in religious studies as well. So I think uh, all our listeners will be uh, will find it valuable. 
Um, so thank you, thank you, Justin, for talking with us. Uh, thank you. Uh, my pleasure. Um, so before we get into the book, uh, maybe you could just tell us a little bit about yourself, uh, maybe how you got interested in the study of religion, uh, maybe how you got focused on Buddhism or even Thai Buddhism. I'm from Philadelphia, um, and uh, so I actually teach where I work. And so I came back to teach at the University of Pennsylvania um, after leaving home after high school. So I teach a few blocks from where I grew up. Um, and uh, uh, my parents are uh, have no connection to uh, Buddhism at all, no connection to University of Pennsylvania They're, uh, um, uh, or academia or anything like that. Uh, so I didn't grow up in a, uh, a household that was, you know, <laughs> that you would be exposed to Buddhist studies at all. Um, I grew up in a very typical Irish Catholic um, family uh, in Philadelphia. And um, so I really didn't have any uh, uh, Asian uh, influences all. Um, uh, and uh, so uh, I didn't get anything from my, my youth um, at all. I mean, except for a deep interest, you know, naturally growing up as a, you know, being an altar boy and things like that. And, um, you know, saints and, uh, um, relics, um, and, uh, rituals in the Catholic tradition. Um, and Catholics are, are, are deeply, uh, ritualistic. Um, and so, um, in, in good, in a good way. And, uh, um, so that maybe that had some sort of influence. I'm not sure. Um, and I, uh, I went to a Catholic college. I went to Boston College undergrad, but I graduated um, uh, quickly. I wasn't there for very long because I, I didn't have enough money and the tuition was quite expensive. And so um, I graduated quickly. And so I moved to Thailand uh, when I was uh, just 21, um, 20 going in 21. And, um, uh, I was a classics major who switched to, um, history and I had a very deep interest in Asia in college. Um, just because I was, you know, something I didn't know anything about. Um, and I've been studying Latin so long. Uh, and so I wanted to, I liked languages. I wanted to do something, something different. I thought Asia might be interesting to go to, um, I didn't have any money and, uh, you know, being a classics major is not, you know, not very marketable. Right. Um, and I didn't really, you know, I just wanted to get away. Um, and so I, uh, I, I wanted to go to Cambodia. I have been, um, volunteering teaching at a Catholic church in the Chelsea part of Boston. Um, and most of my students were, uh, I was teaching English. Most of my students were in citizen classship classes like that. Um, and most of my students were Cambodian, uh, refugees. Um, uh, been, mo many have been in the country. This was in 1992. So most of the people have been refugees have been in Boston for a few years. They weren't off the boat refugees. Um, and so I started learning a lot about Cambodia just from them. Um, and I ended up doing research on Cambodian politics and history in college and finishing doing that instead of classics. Um, and, uh, I was really interested in kind of post-traumatic stress and, uh, 
psychosomatic um, blindness and other issues. And, but, you know, I couldn't get into Cambodia because, you know, they didn't need Latin teachers. I mean, the, you know, the war was still going on. Uh, the civil war was still going on. Um, the UN was moving in later that year or, you know, I didn't know that, but well, I actually didn't know because I was researching. And so, um, when I wanted to go there, the UN gone in and, you know, I just didn't have any, any own skills to, to be of any assistance at all. Uh, so I volunteered, um, to go to Thailand because I figured it was next door and I didn't know anything about Thailand. Um, I actually realized that one of the kids that grew up in my neighborhood, um, was half Thai. I didn't know that, you know, I, you know, growing up in Philadelphia, you know, you're either, you know, Irish, black or Chinese. I mean, you know, we don't, we didn't know any, you know, I mean, I hate to say that ignorant, but I mean, we really didn't know anything. And, um, so now I look back, I was like, wow, I had actually had a Thai friend. Um, and, uh, uh, and so, but I don't think that was any influence because he was from Philadelphia. <laughs> he just, he just happened to be Thai. Um, and I didn't know that. We never talked about her. Um, and I, now I know the language his mother spoke at home to him, <laughs> which is funny. Like I always, <laughs> he would speak to his mom in the kitchen and I, you know, for years I just ignored it because I didn't know a word of it. And, uh, I thought it was Chinese <laughs> and, uh, you know, <laughs> I feel terrible now, but you know, he didn't know it. I mean, he knew it obviously because he could understand his mother, but he didn't speak Thai back or he spoke English back to but which is typical of, you know, people going, you know, they, they tend to have kitchen, you know, they understand their language. They don't, they don't like to speak it. So, um, so, you know, no real influences at all and no connection to Thailand whatsoever besides this one kid in my neighborhood and, um, you know, not, knew nothing about Buddhism. I'd taken one class in college that, you know, it was just kind of a philosophy class on um, Indian uh, Mahayana Buddhism. Um, you know, I thought it was interesting. I, I wasn't you know, I was really political. I was really, you know, I was a punk rocker. I was, you know, I was, you know, like I was not interested in religion. I was interested in, in, you know, death and politics and war and things like that. And, um, you know, I mean like teenagers stuff they're into. And, um, uh, so, you know, I went to Thailand knowing nothing. Um, but, uh, I, I was very lucky when I got there, um, that I was sent to, what I thought was going to be terrible. It was, I, I, you know, I really thought I was going to be sent to some beautiful rice paddies or I'd be sent into the mountains, into the forests, or, you know, I thought I'd be sent to like, you know, what you see on movies, like, you know, um, and I was sent to like an industrial, I call it the Toledo of, of Thailand. You know what I mean? And I like Toledo personally. I mean, I think it's a great town or like the, you know, Camden, New Jersey or something of, 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 of Thailand. And, and, you know, it was 1900 factories in the province. It's on the ocean. So, it, it, you know, but there was no beach. It was all polluted. Um, bus, I mean, not big town, but, you know, 25,000 people, maybe a little bit more, but like not big, not small, ugly, stank of fish, um, canneries, um, chemical plants. Um, and I, I loved it. I just, I, I don't know what it was about that town. I just thought it was the greatest place I'd ever been. Um, I, 
you know, people really, I lived with two ties. One was a teacher of physics and one was a teacher of agricultural sciences. I taught in an all girls high school there and they, they were just teachers in the high school. So I, you know, they were single and they had housing on campus. And so, you know, they, 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 I think they were a little upset that they got stuck with the white guy, you know, living in with them who didn't speak their language and everything. But those were, and I ended up being the best man at one guy's wedding. I mean, we, we are, we are still close friends and, um, although unfortunately I don't see him much anymore, but, um, but we still talk, uh, on, and, um, uh, you know, he's, um, you know, was a great guy and the other guy was a great guy and, and they, you know, they were funny. They were drinkers. They liked to talk and they liked to, they, they've both been monks before. So we talked about that, but, you know, mostly we like, you know, taught our classes and then drank and you know rode around on motorcycles and they were a little older than me about 10 years older than me but um you know we just had a great time and the fact that they really liked to joke around and talk around and so they were very they didn't like the fact that i didn't get their jokes that my language wasn't good enough and so they made me they would only speak in thai to me they made me study 50 new vocabulary words every night um, you know, we, this was before the internet. We had no phone in the house. We had no TV and we just language all the time, language, language, language. And, um, that was the best part of being that town. No tourist would ever want to go to this town. It's terribly ugly. It stinks. And so I was forced to only speak Thai and, um, really I loved my students and it, it was just a great, great town. And, um, I spent about a year and a half, maybe a little bit more than that there. Um, you know, and I met a lot of monks, just normal everyday monks. And, um, you know, one thing about these guys is that the only thing that I really couldn't, you know, we, you know, I did, you know, I did everything they did. You know, I ate the way they ate and I went to their family homes on vacation and, um, you know, I never went home to the States. I never went home for a visit or anything like that. And I didn't have a phone. I would go to Bangkok once every maybe three months to make a phone call, international phone call. Um, Bangkok was about two, little over two hours away on a train, um, on a train and a couple buses to get to this phone. And, um, I mean, times have really changed. I and mean, now that whole town is wired and everything, you know, I mean, wired, you know, so, but yeah. it's amazing yeah. only 20 years ago, um, you know, how, you know, people, you know, I mean, just, you just had no way of making international calls for, you know, unless you wanted to, you know, pay it on the leg or something. So, um, you know, so it was the only thing I didn't do that they all did was, was, um, you know, become a monk, you know what I mean? And so I said, well, you know, that's an experience I want too. you know, I experienced all the other cultural things I, I experienced. So, you know, I went into the monkhood and, um, I did it. I mean, I was done my, my volunteer teaching time. Um, and, uh, I'd started to take classes at, uh, master's classes at Jewel Longcorn University in, um, Bangkok. And I would commute up to Bangkok, um, uh, to do that. And then I li lived in an apartment in Bangkok, uh, for a few months, uh, too. And, um, so I was getting more into Thai literature, Thai history. I was taking classes like this. Um, my language was getting, you know, you know, quite good. My re reading and, and writing were, were, you know, I, you know, were, you know, were good. And, um, and, um, uh, 
so, you know, I felt I could read everything. I felt like I could, you know, speak in any situation. Um, and so I, you know, I, you know, I thought I was ready to become a monk and, um, you know, nice thing is that, um, you know, you have to have parents sponsor, you have to have a sponsor and, you know, my parents didn't, you know, they couldn't, they couldn't drop the age or anything like that. So, um, uh, you know, my next door neighbors who happened to be a lesbian couple, they, they didn't have kids and they said they'd be my sponsors because they would never have a chance to, you know, ordain a son, which is very, gives a lot of merit. It's very, you know, it's a very important thing to do for Buddhists and um, for Thai Buddhists um, and Southeast Asian Buddhists in general. And so they were my sponsors and I ended up ordaining at a very rural monastery on the Thai Cambodian, I mean, on the Lao Thai Cambodian border in the area that they called the Emerald Triangle. Um, and a very, only five monks. I was the fifth, four monks, you know, um, Lao Abbot, he was born in Laos and moved to Thailand. Um, and, uh, um, you know, forest monastery, you know, you know, cl- you know, what I thought Thailand would be like, like, you know, low electricity monastery was on an island in the middle of a river in the middle of nowhere and extremely quiet. Um, you know, monkeys jumping on top of your, you know, I mean, really like classic, you know, what, I don't know. And, uh, you know, turtles and, you know, big giant butterflies and lots of insects and lizards and stuff and, uh, snakes. Um, I got bit by a snake very badly then actually. And then, um, uh, so, you know, it was, it was a good experience and, and, um, you know, I learned, you know, a lot and my Lao, um, got pretty good and I started to seriously study Lao at that time too. And I started to not study Pali, like, but I was chanting so much Pali language you know, for liturgy that I started to get really interesting. I think it's my classics kind of training that I really wanted to know the, since Thai and Lao are monosyllabic, large, they're not monos, purely monosyllabic, but they're tonal languages, non-declined, non-conjugated languages. Um, Pali was this. Pali, you know, is an Indo-European language. And so, and, and it, you know, of course, is related in a very distant relation to Latin. Um, and so I really got interested in that. And so, um, you know, after I was there for three years and after that, I went home. Um, I actually met my wife um, in, um, I'd actually gone to Cambodia. I finally went to Cambodia. <laughs> Um, and, uh, just as a tourist and, um, and the war is still going on, but it wasn't too bad. Um, I mean, the war was really largely over at that point, but you know, it was fine. And, um, we traveled overland from, um, Laos to, uh, Belgium and, uh, we went through China and Russia and uh, Trans-Siberian in the winter. And, uh, that took us eight months, I think, I think eight months. And, um, you know, and then we went to, we flew from Belgium to Ireland to visit my family who lives there and then, uh, and then came home and I applied to PhD pro, main master's programs before I started on the trip. And I found out in the Czech Republic that I'd gotten into a few places. I got my, you know, I called my parents from there. And so I started graduate, I got married and then I started graduate school. Um, and, um, I really, cause I'm an Irish citizen, um, I thought, um, you know, I go to, uh, I wanted to go to Oxford because they had a good program or so as, but I interviewed there and, um, it just wasn't for me. Uh, just, I didn't really, um, the, 
professors are great. It just wasn't for me. And, um, I, you know, I didn't have any formal training in Buddhist studies. I had no classes. I had no, you know, and, you know, they were just, it was just research. And, you know, I, I thought, I, you know, I needed to learn something. Um, I knew a lot about Thailand and I knew a lot about Laos and my languages were pretty good, but, um, you know, so I went, I ended up going to Harvard and, um, I uh, did my master's and my PhD there, master's in religious studies or what they call uh, divinity school, the um, master's of theological studies, they call it, and um, which is like world religions. And um, I primarily studied Sanskrit. Uh, and uh, then I got my PhD in Sanskrit. Um, but I was only in residence for four years total for all my master's and PhD because I went back to Thailand on um uh, a few fellowships and, um, uh, you know, so I was in, I, you know, almost half my degree, I was back in Laos and mostly Laos this time in Thailand. So, um, uh, which was good because I, my poly and Sanskrit were pretty solid and I could, I learned how to read the old Lao and old Tom and old Lana scripts. So I did a lot of manuscript archiving. I did, Stuff like that. And, um, you know, I could speak the, you know, monk's language and, um, you know, I could operate pretty comfortably in monasteries and, um, or, you know, if it, it didn't seem like a problem, I mean, nobody had a problem with me, I guess. And, um, uh, you know, wrote my first book. Um, I mean, did my dissertation. I wrote my first book on, uh, monastic education and manuscripts and vernacular and class Latin, uh, that came out in 2008. Um, it's called uh, gathering leaves and lifting words. And, um, um, so that, that was good. Um, I mean, I really enjoyed writing that book. Um, it's a very, um, you know, it's history. Um, there's also some modern, I mean, it goes up to the present day talks about modern Buddhist education and, um, but it's heavy on manuscripts and, and, uh, and things like that. And, um, so, you know, it wasn't, uh, you know, I don't know if it's, you know, I, I you know, some people like it. I, I don't, you know, I don't think it's the <laughs> funnest book to read. Um, you know, I, so, you know, I mean, I guess that's what I'm saying is that there's a motivation to write something maybe that is a little bit more, um, accessible, you know, a little bit more readable, um, a little bit more, that um my friends in thailand would want to read um and so i'm hoping actually it's going to be translating into thai this the new book and um next year i hope we'll start the translation i'll work with somebody to that's you know, great and but i mean i think it's something that like i wouldn't want my first because it's not you know what i mean like i think a lot of my friends in time will actually you know see a little bit of their you know their religion you know i mean they they'll recognize themselves in this book i hope um, and they'll recognize the practices and, you know, because most, you know, most, as I argue my first, you know, most monks don't work with manuscripts. They don't, they chant from them and they, but they're, they're not, you know, like most priests aren't Greek philologists, you know, like Catholic priests, you know, same thing. Most monks are, you know, uh, they're good monks, but they, they don't, they're not, their, their aim is not to be textual scholars. Um, so, um, and I mean, like most religious people in the world, you know, and so, um, uh, so, you know, I taught at the Ohio university when I came back. Um, I actually got the job at Ohio university was I, st I was still in Thailand. Um, I did my first job interview on the phone in Bangkok actually. And, um, 
And um, so I had a job right when I got back from the field before I finished my degree. And it was a great job. I loved Ohio University. Just wonderful place to teach. Um, great student. Just really wonderful um, place. And then I uh, that was only a two-year position. Um, and so they didn't have a tenure-track job. So I took a tenure-track position at the University of California, Riverside, another fantastic place to teach. Um, I loved, I'd never really been to California. I'd been there, but I'd never spent any time in California before. And I, I, I adored Southern California. I just thought Los Angeles was, uh, or the Los Angeles area and Riverside especially were wonderful and, uh, great colleagues, really good department, um, and a very good Southeast Asian program. So, and it was interesting to go from a place like Ohio where I had basically no Buddhist students at all to a place that, you know, in, I would teach into a intro to Buddhism and at least half of the students in a class of 100 would be Buddhist. Um, because UCR's student population is over 50% Asian and there was a lot of Vietnamese Buddhists, a lot of Chinese Buddhists, Korean Buddhists, some Thais in the class. I had Burmese Buddhist students and that was great. I have to say it was really, um, it's not like these undergrads just because they were Buddhist know anything about Buddhism. I mean, you know, I mean, like the average Lutheran undergrad doesn't know a lot about the history of Christianity, obviously, but, you know, um, but they, you know, they had the experience of being at funerals or being at weddings. They had the, you know, the deep kind of cultural experiences that, um, it was so hard to communicate to people. And that's another motivation for writing this book that I wanted a book that students would be able to kind of, you know, feel like a little bit like, you know, what it's like to be, uh, in a Buddhist country. Um, and I started a website at that time too, which is still under construction, but mostly viewable online, which is like videos, 3d panoramas, monastery walkthroughs, um, resources. It's, um, called the Thai digital monastery project. And, um, and that's kind of, it doesn't really accompany this book, but it, you know, I have about 9,000 photos on that website, a lot, tons of videos. And, you know, it basically, um, it, uh, you know, serves as a visual kind of reference to things I'm talking about. Um, even though it was, I didn't, I actually started the website before I started this book. And so, um, uh, and, um, but they actually comp, I mean, students say they complement each other, um, a little bit than one. So I've, I've read the book. So, um, I'm hoping that's the case. Um, and so that's really about it. I'm sorry to be long winded about it. I mean, but it's really, you know, a really not interesting story. <laughs> I mean, you know, it's a, you know, I, I'd love if there was like a, you know, like some, I was on a mountain and I had a vision, you know, or, you know, I was meditating one night and I, you know, I, you know, I just, it was, it's, you know, I like languages a lot and, um, I like studying them right now. I'm in second year Japanese. And so I just love studying new languages and, um, working on my Javanese because I actually studied that for a while. Yeah. I just love studying new languages and Japanese. I'm entranced by it. I just, I absolutely love it. I spend, as my wife says, it's basically like I'm having an affair with grammar, you know, that, you know, because I spend all my time these days, you know, on Japanese, like five days a week in class and taking exams. It's weird to be in class on undergrads again. And, um, it's fun though. Japanese is really fun. Um, so the, the way you introduce the book is is basically directly derived from your experiences in Thailand. Uh, uh-huh. So maybe you could discuss kind of the motivation for this particular book. 
one thing I noticed about graduate school um, is that, you know, frustrated me a little bit, but um, was that what I was learning about Buddhism largely I I didn't recognize. Um, it's not, you know, I guess most pe people have an interest in Buddhism and then go abroad to find it. You know, I didn't go abroad with an interest in Buddhism. I happened to, like, meet Buddhism on the way to do something else. And um, and so, you know, I, I guess maybe I didn't have some, I didn't have preconceived notions of what Buddhism was, except from, like, Kung Fu movies and things. Like, I really didn't have a whole lot of, you know, idea of what it was. And so, um, and when I got to graduate school and I was in my first really kind of like Theravada Buddhist study, I mean, I took a class called Theravada Buddhism, you know, and, um, and, uh, you know, when I, you know, was, I, I just didn't recognize it and what I was seeing was not, and there wasn't a book that was, you know, that I could look to that was, that reminded me of, of my experiences at all. Um, and then, you know, I, uh, you know, one thing in Thailand and in, in my experience is that, you know, when I was a monk, I had to, you know, I had to bless buffaloes, water buffaloes, I had to bless motorcycles, you know, I performed funerals, um, and, uh, you know, as a lay person there, I would go to lots of different funerals and I would go to different chanting rituals, morning rituals and afternoon rituals and, I was a Sanskrit tutor when I was uh, doing my PhD. I was a Sanskrit tutor at a monastery at a monastic university. And, um, you know, I'd be part of the monastic life there. And um, I lived right next to the amulet market, the, the big amulet market in, in Bangkok during that, that two years. And, um, um, well, no, about a year there. And then the rest was in the house, actually. So, yeah, only about a year there in that market. And um, I lived right next to a temple that, uh, you know, about 200 yards away, not even that far, actually, um, which was a home of some that, though, his the place where he used to be a monk. And I, you know, I'd seen his image everywhere. I, you know, I heard his, I'd even memorized his chant. I didn't know it was his chant, but as a monk, I had to memorize it, you know, and I, uh, I just didn't know anything about him. And, and you know, it's just, but, you know, I was comfortable. I was comfortable with ghost stories. I was used to giving offerings to ghosts. I was used to you know, chanting to protect ghosts. I was um, comfortable with kind of saintly monks, but I never thought to write about it, really. I mean, I never thought to, you know, I considered myself, I think, I, I don't know if I left this in the book or not, but, you know, I, you know, I'm kind of a bookish guy, you know, <laughs> I, I'm, I, you know, I'm an archivist, really, and a translator. And, um, you know, that's what I consider research and write was doing the serious textual stuff. And, um, but you know, it just, you know, a lot of student questions, a lot of, um, you know, people ask me stuff or I, I remember I made a comment at an AR conference, I think it was 2004 or something. And, uh, you know, somebody sent something like, oh, this never happens. And I said, well, actually it does, you know, it happens in Thailand. And they're like, well, how do you know like that? Like, where can I read it? And I'm like, I don't know. I just know it. You know what I mean? I've seen it. And and somebody's like, somebody said, you should write that down then, you know, like, and I've never really, you know, and I just finally, I said, okay, maybe I'll start writing about these kind of overwhelming, you know, important characters that, you know, I was struck when I started recently that no one had ever written about this in French or in German or in English. And that, um, it was so important to ties. It was just, there's so many books written about 
so that they'll entice. So many biographies and hagiographies. There's films, you know, one, one documentary, but other films where he's featured in it. Um, you know, Manak is such a hugely important. I mean, I'd seen her films. I, you know, heard her stories all over the place. I mean, these were just solely important figures, and that I decided that you know maybe. You know, maybe I should be listening to what my friends in Thailand are interested in and and expose that. Um, and that really was the motivation that it was. I again, I wanted I wanted to write something that my Thai friends would 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 recognize themselves. My colleagues would recognize themselves. My my abbot of my monastery would would under you know. I mean, of course, he has the capacity to understand that they all you know. It's not you know. It's just that is that they wouldn't be bored by. <laughs> Yes. Um, and that, you know, the more and more I started investing, when I decided to write about it and I really started investigating the history, it was just fascinating. And um, I, I couldn't believe all these kind of deep historical connections. And um, I especially was um, got into the Anglo trade very much. I used to actually what is called Lemka, which is play with Anglo, basically, um, play with sacred things. And um, I used to do that when I was 21 in this town I lived in, and um, because I just liked it, I traded baseball cards when I grew up. So you know, I liked doing stuff like that, and um, you know, so I really got into the material culture of of some of those followings, um, and Manax followings, and others um, into the statues and the art. I started interviewing at a lot of uh, image making factories and workshops. Um, I started, um, you know, kind of just going with people on pilgrimages, um, talking to them. Um, I, because I was into trading amulets and collecting amulets, I would hunt amulets down. And, you know, I, I discovered, man, I'm not alone. There's lots of very smart, very interesting, you know, Thai women and men that are doing this too. Um, and, and I would, you know, I remember when I was researching manuscripts, I would have great conversation with Muslim nuns and, and novices, um, you know, about this stuff, about, you know, ghosts and saints, but rarely good conversations about, I mean, about manuscripts. And um, that when I started telling people in Thailand, whether it be, you know, a shopkeeper or a senior scholar monk or, you know, an annual trader or a professor or whatever, what I was doing, they were so excited to talk to me. They were so happy that I was researching this. Um, and, you know, it, that, their excitement got me excited, I guess. Um, and, uh, also my students, when I started bringing back photos from the field and I started, you know, teaching, you know, Buddhist intro to Buddhism and, and Buddhist literature with my undergraduate courses. And I started bringing in some of this, you know, vernacular material and this kind of, um, ghost material and the supernatural. The students really... You know, they, they, they loved it. And they, 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 I love the debates in class, you know, versus we would have, you know, well, how can a religion promote non-attachment and promote, you know, compassion and pr promote non-self, but at the same time, you know, have all these ghost stories and attachments to ghosts and such an emotional stories about them. And how can they promote, um, you know, uh, you know, uh, uh, ideas of um, 
you know, non-attachment to the material world or the world material world is illusionary, but trade in amulets and bow down with statues and perform these rituals. And, and, you know, classically, people generally are interested in Buddhism in the States, especially, you know, really, they're sort of, you know, crypto existentialists or hippies or, you know, skateboarders. And, you know, they weren't kind of a Unitarian type of Buddhism, I generally found, like stripped away of all ritual and just being ideas and just being kind of lofty reflections on the nature of being. And, um, you know, I got really great debates with them when I brought them out of the clouds, in a sense, down to a ghost ritual and said, you know, how do you, how do you negotiate your Buddhism, in a sense, your idea of Buddhism with, with this reality of Buddhism? And are they really that separate? Do, you know, and, and that's, I don't want to, I didn't want my book, and I don't believe either that, these are completely different ways of approaching religion, that there's a Nibonic and a religion centered on Nirvana and then one of the people, or there's a folk religion versus a scholarly religion. I hate those binaries because they never work on the ground. I found that, um, you know, in the book I mentioned, you know, you, I would meet, you know, highly educated, you know, neuroscientists and professors who were just as into the ghost practice and, ghost ritual as, you know, a farmer, you know, that, you know, that the royal family follows, you know, this, and, um, this is not kind of a rural leftover. This is not an animus substrate of Buddhism. This, this is Buddhism. And all of those things that we see as contradictions, perhaps between kind of a lofty religion that promotes non-attachment and a religion that is, you know, is, you know, stuck deep in, in fear and attachment and emotions um, and ritual, they're actually not that far apart if you dig deep enough. And and um, you actually don't even need to dig that deep. You just need to talk to people and, and listen to their answers and, and take it seriously. Um, and I find that a lot of approaches to Buddhism that separate kind of magic from real religion or folk religion from scholarly religion or um, I find them extremely condescending and, um, and not, not, I don't witness those things on the ground. Um, and so in this way, this book brought up a lot of tensions that I was seeing in class, tensions that I was seeing, you know, in my field, um, tensions that I was seeing with my, with my colleagues and, um, uh, that, you know, it was interesting how strange people, uh, non-Buddhist, non-Thai Buddhists found all of these stories about ghosts and magic, but how normal Thai Buddhists found them. <laughs> and I guess I wanted to write a book about, well, this is normal Buddhism. So uh, before we get into um, some other parts of the book, uh, maybe you could tell us the story of the lovelorn ghost and the magical monk. Sure. Well, let's start with some that though he's the magical monk, and he's really where the story starts. He was a uh, I, I argue, and I don't think I really need to argue. There's really no doubt about this that he's the most recognized monk in the last two hundred years of Thailand. That there is no more imaged monk. There's no more kind of monk written about um, than him, uh, and he is uh, honored and loved by all classes, all regions. I mean, he's certainly more popular in central Thailand, northern Thailand, northeastern than the south. And, but he's, um, but he's well known in the south. He's got images all over the country. The largest image of any monk in the world, largest statue of any monk in the world is of him. And it's, 
something like 90 feet tall. Um, I mean, he's got colossal images of him all over the country. Um, I mean, he is, you know, as well known as, you know, Elvis or, you know, you know, it's just hugely popular, um, in kind of in an iconic way. And, um, uh, that, you know, almost the way Ben Franklin is in Philadelphia, the statue of Ben Franklin every three blocks or something. I mean, you know, hugely popular, you know, person in history. And, um, the story goes that, you know, his mother was, um, living, uh, was a poor Lao girl, Laos speaking girl, uh, living in what is nowadays Northern Thailand, probably a place called Gampang Pet. And the story goes, it's hard to prove this story and I don't think it's, it's quite accurate, but the story that most people believe and the most people tell, and that's why it's the most important story, I think, is, um, that King Rama the first, the first king of the present dynasty of Thailand, King Thailand's birthday was yesterday and he's the ninth king. So he's Rama the ninth who's living now. Rama the first. So this is in the 1770s, um, be- 1760s actually, before he, um, became the king of Thailand. He was a general and he was fighting against the Burmese in the north. And, um, one day he, he got separated from his troops. He had to go to the bathroom actually and he got lost in the forest on his horse. Um, and, uh, he's growing increasingly thirsty. It's very hot in this part of the country. It's very hot in all parts of the country. And, um, he's getting thirstier and thirstier and he comes across a young teenage girl and he asks her for some water. And, um, you know, she says, sure, I can give you some water. And she sees that he's an important man. He has a nice horse. He has a nice outfit, uniform. And right before she goes to give him this bowl of water, um, she takes stamens out of a lotus flower that was growing on the, in, you know, a ditch on the side of the path. And she puts the stamens into the water. Now, have you ever had the taste of this? And I actually taste, tasted it to see what it was like. Um, it tastes awful. Uh, I mean, the water is completely bitter and, uh, it's terrible to taste. And so he's a little surprised she did that, but he's really thirsty. So he needs to drink it. So he got like, purses his lips. He drinks it very, very slowly, avoiding swallowing these stamens floating in the water. And, um, he hands her the bowl back and, and, uh, and he goes, you know, thank you for giving me this water, young lady. But, you know, why, you know, why did you? poison this water like why not poison it but why did you you know make this water so disgusting tasting uh clearly i'm an important guy and why would you do this and she goes well you're on a horse and you were so thirsty and so kind of full of you know kind of you know craving and uh that i thought you would gulp the water down you would choke and you fall off your horse and get hurt and so by doing this i made you drink slowly and you're still quenched but you're not hurt and he's like wow that's very clever um for a young girl and it's so clever that why don't we have sex basically? And, um, he, he, you know, uh, you know, he said, well, I got to get back to my troops. And, um, but if you're pregnant, um, you know, go, go to Bangkok and, um, my family's really important and take my belt and show my belt and I'll raise your child. Well, she is indeed pregnant and she is a refugee from these wars and she shows up in Bangkok. She has a son. He grows up in kind of central plains of Thailand and lots of the monasteries where his family lived. His mother, she was a single mom. Him and his mom lived 
where, you know, our kind of famous pilgrimage sites and lots of people go there and, um, everybody wants to claim that some, that those young man, you know, slept at the monastery. I mean, he's, you know, um, and, uh, you know, kind of like if you go to Mississippi, every single town in Mississippi claimed that Faulkner wrote there, you know, that, you know, every single town in central Thailand claims that, you know, some of the town was somehow there. And he, he did travel a lot. So he'd probably go a lot of places. But she finally goes to Bangkok. She gives the bell. And now the king, he's become the king of Thailand. He supposedly sponsors his education. He learns poly, the, some that does young man, uh, some that's a title means, it's like a royal title, but though, you know, this young boy, though, learns Pali and he learns, um, he's trained then in rural areas and magical traditions and death meditation, meditation on corpses. I mean, and, um, he, um, uh, you know, becomes this highly trained and uh, famous monk and it's said that his amulets can heal people's sickness. They can protect against ghosts. They can, um, you know, uh, protect against lots of different things. And, uh, he ends up being the poly tutor for King Rama the fourth and fifth, which are, you know, the most important kings in Thai history. And so he's got this kind of refugee background, this Lao background, and he's got this royal background. And those two aspects of his life really lend to his popularity because that he's seen as this kind of legitimate, royal, well-trained, well-educated monk, but he's also loved by kind of the, you know, rural poor and that loved by, you know, Lao speaking or speaking in a Lao accent um, in Thailand, in urban Thailand is kind of, you know, sounds like country bumpkins or sounds like, you know, it sounds, um, you know, people look down on it in some ways, but it's a source of pride for a lot of people from the rural areas to speak in this accent. Um, and Lao is a separate language too. So either in a Lao type accent or in Lao. And, and so he could speak to both groups, it seems. And, um, you know, uh, one foreigner saw him give a sermon and refers to this. We have a document of this. And he was photographed by, you know, a German photographer in the, you know, 1870s. And, you know, he was this hugely important monk. And then he was made abbot of, of, uh, the second oldest temple in, in all of Bangkok and a hugely important royal temple. Um, the one I used to live down the street from. Um, and, uh, you know, um, he, even after he died, and he died mysteriously, like, you know, every monk, famous monk who dies, like, you know about his death, and they cremate him, or they mummify him sometimes, and then they collect their bones and their ashes, but he, we don't have any of these things, it's almost like he just went into the ether, and, um, you know, I tracked down a lot of stories about that in the, in the book, and, um, a lot of stuff I had to cut out of the book a lot because it just, there's so many, so much detail you could go into. And, um, I tried not to bog it down too much. And, um, he, uh, even after his death, he said that he still protects Thailand nowadays, that he protected against the French, um, colonization in 1893. It said that he magically put Amulus in the river before he died and this stopped the French. And so Siam was the only non-colonized country because of some that though it's people said that they saw him floating over the city of Bangkok during the Japanese bombing in World War II and he was deflecting bombs magically. You know, he's just. You know, and his amulets that he made, he made probably about 3,000 amulets in his life. And these first run amulets, if you can get ones, you know, one sold for 2.75 million US dollars. And it's a little clay amulet just because he made it. Um, and, you know, there's lots of copies made. His students 
amulets are really valuable. I mean, he's an industry unto himself. And um, lots of people owe their salaries to something though even today because of his following um books writings amulets all these things and um but the what links him to this famous uh ghost is um that he cured her of being a ghost in a sense and let me explain that so there's a young woman named knack and um knack she lived in what is nowadays Bangkok, but was at that time a kind of a rural suburb. Uh, Bangkok has grown by 14 million people since 1860. And so um, at this time, it was this kind of rural area. And nowadays, it's uh, it's southern Bangkok. And um, she was a, you know, a farmer in the sand. She just got married. They were pregnant. Her husband were a young couple, farming couple. And her husband is conscripted into uh, the military. And he ends up getting injured, almost fatally injured in the field and knocked out and unconscious. And he, she, she assumes he died. Um, and she's dealing with, you know, pregnancy and she's worried about her baby and she can't, you know, she doesn't know what to do about her husband. She ends up dying in childbirth. Um, the baby dies and she dies. Um, well, the husband is not dead. He he finally comes out of his unconscious and he's cured by some that though. Some that he was brought to some that those main uh, monastery, some that though healed the soldier, cured him with his magic and his um this poly chant called the Gina Panjaragata or the uh, verses on the victor's cage, which is this famous chant that is associated with him. Um is actually from Sri Lanka probably, but is associated with some that though in Thailand is more popular in Thailand, this poly chant this magical incantation and um he uh so the husband goes back home and he's going to visit his you know wife he doesn't know he didn't know she died um and he goes in his house and he sees his wife and he sees his baby and it's a wonderful thing but they're ghosts and he doesn't know they're ghosts and um there's 22 films made of this story there's radio programs there's lots of books um they just made an animated version a couple years ago of this really great kind of action animation but she he lives with this ghost he doesn't know she's a ghost and his neighbors kind of whisper in his ear they come and visit him while he's working in the fields and they visit him at night and they say you know your wife's a ghost and you, know, you really you need to wake up and realize she's not you know real and he's like ah you're crazy what are you talking about and uh in most versions of the story anybody who kind of warns him that she's a ghost, she kills that night. So she ends up being this kind of murderous ghost. She ends up killing all these people uh, in the village. And, um, you know, the villagers are getting mad now. They're like, you know, we got to stop this ghost killing us. And um, they try to capture him, the husband. They try to, like, uh, have monks, you know, kind of put spells on him and kind of snap him out of it. And it's not working. And they try to stop her with all of these, you know, Buddhist chants and rituals, and she can't be stopped. And uh, finally, they bring in Somdetta, and they're like, you know, you are like the green beret of monks. You, you're the best monk. Like, if you can't solve this ghost problem, no one can. And he solves it. He chants his famous chant. He pacifies her, and in many ways, he's compassionate towards her. Um, he, um. You know, he understands her attachment. He understands her love for her husband. She doesn't want to leave her husband. And he understands her, his, 
the husband's attachment for her and and he doesn't dismiss it but you know he kind of says you know like here it goes down you have to say goodbyes and um and supposedly he makes a amulet cut out of the bone of her forehead you know they dig up the actual corpse and um that's been that's like the holy grail in thailand to find this this forehead bone and um and uh, i mean i'd love to find it but no luck um supposedly the royal family has it but who knows um and um i mean if they have it at least it's in safe hands i guess and so um so uh you know it's a they they are linked these two this monk and this ghost are linked um in thailand and and they're linked to shrines sometimes and um they're beloved and they're beloved for amazingly similar ways um in the way that they um you know are you know kind of they they have great powers even though they're relatively normal people they're you know they're um they have um they they love well and they think well and they take care of people and you know she's depicted as a loving mother you know to her ghost baby and um and a good wife and he's depicted as kind of like this fatherly uncle like guide to you know children and and to ghosts and um he's often told stories about him you know how he protects children you know at night from fear of ghosts and how he um helps drunks and you know he has compassion on people who are down on their luck and um you know just a wonderfully kind of evocative you know stories um and i would love it was great in the field to hear people tell these stories and it was great to watch the films about them it was great to hear people and everybody had a slightly different story everybody had a slightly different reason for liking some that though and manak and you know it's interesting that people chant and offer gifts to like shrines to a murderous ghost um but why they did and, and the, the values she she stressed and, you know, she protects pregnant mothers, supposedly. Now she has some soldiers in the field, so people offer her statue. Um, she's a main statue, but, you know, one of her main shrines um, I used to visit alive and they, you know, offer her gifts and um, you know, they, like, offer makeup and dresses so she can dress up, you know, in the afterlife. And um, it's really wonderful. Um, following um and really interesting if you start tracking the history of it too and history of the first filmmakers you know the 30s who were trying to make films of her i mean she's been a part of thai culture for 150 years and a deep part of it and um and he has too um he was born in 1782 and died in probably 1876 um um we're not exactly sure of those dates. Um, and I have to say, if I don't know, then no one knows because I've looked at every source possible. <laughs> I really have studied this. Um, and I have just a mountain of documents on this. And um, it was great translating these stories and, and reading them. So um, that's the story. And, and so what I did was I used these two as kind of a jumping off point to study for two groups of four things. Okay. Like there's four chapters. The first chapter is on monks and kings. So it's kind of a chapter on what makes the ideal monk. And it's the story of some that's love life, but expand it into what are the values of a monk that aren't, that we might not know. And, and sometimes the values are attachment and loyalty and, um, kind of caring, like fatherly like caring and nationalism is a big, you know, value, um, you know, that he protected the nation and, 
um, you know, magical power, which, you know, we might see as, well, that's not very monkly to perform magic tricks, but, you know, these aren't seen as magic tricks. It's seen as that he was protecting people and med, you know, healing people is a value. And so that's the first chapter. And the second chapter talks about texts. And so how are texts important? And I talk a lot about this signature chant, but then I talk a lot about a lot of other protective texts, uh, tattooing, um, Yantra writing this kind of, um, uh, these symbols and letters and numbers that they're not really symbols, but letters and numbers and certain combinations that protect you and you can tattoo and you can put on shirts and things and put on sides of buildings and cars. And, um, so all about text. And so kind of a larger discussion about what is text. And then in that talking about what is, do, what do we call these magical types of texts? I go into arguments about is this a t- form of tantric Buddhism in Southeast Asia? And I, I won't go into that, but I deal with kind of this idea of, of Southeast Asian tantra a little bit. Um, and then the third chapter is on ritual. Um, and I look at all the various rituals around some that don't man knock and then expand that to talk about ritual and, and magic and liturgy in general in Thailand. Um, and then the fourth chapter is on art and uh, material culture. And so I talk about amulets. I talk about statues. I talk about museums. Um, I talk about murals. Um, all, you know, I use some that do murals, paintings of him and statues of him in Menak as a launching point to talk about these things in general. So the book really is about Thai Buddhism in general. It's just, I, I start with these two figures as kind of a way of talking about these other things. Um, and so there's four. The second set of four is I talk about what I call, um, you know, uh, kind of, you know, axioms of, of Thai Buddhist culture. And, and those are, um, um, you know, what are the things that these two characters and the study of Thai Buddhism um, reflects about Thai culture in, in general? And, that I say that it values, we see that these stories, the art, the liturgy, the rituals, that the, they value abundance, um, that they value uh, lots of objects and lots of art and lots of stories that, um, and, and wealth and that, um, more, more is more. And, um, so abundance and then, uh, heritage, heritage, nationalism, um, is extremely important. Um, the sense of, you know, um, what it means to be um, a Thai and what it means to be a Buddhist. And then security is a value, you know, protection against disease, protection against, you know, miscarriage, uh, protection against, you know, sickness and fire and murder and invasion. Um, and then uh, the last value is graciousness. Um, this idea of not putting people out about um, uh welcoming people and beauty um, and making somebody comfortable and making an atmosphere beautiful and that, you know, these temples and these cults promote this sense of graciousness and, and beauty. And we often see, I think, Buddhism as kind of a stark religion. And we have this kind of idea of Zen rock gardens or lonely monks in the forest and, you know, kind of a very cool, non-ritualistic Buddhism. And really in Thailand, you don't see that. You see things are beautiful and, and gold and overflowing and um, that this is what Buddhist monasteries in many ways and Buddhist stories are, are promoting. Um, and so that's the, the gist of the book generally. And um, 
I want to ask you something about your methodology because I think it's it could be very valuable for for any uh, scholar of religion. Um, and I'm going to uh, quote you here. Uh, in the in the introduction, you say, "I emph emphasize that objects and people co-produce knowledge. Therefore, instead of trying to find what is Buddhist about a particular person, uh, what a particular person holds, chants, or and values, I look first to how they do something, how they say they do something, and the material and social context they do it in. And you call the book overall a, a pragmatic sociological study of cultural repertoires. I'm wondering if you could expand on on this approach, uh, the the method you're using, and what you you see as these cultural repertoires. Repertoire, I, exactly. Like I needed to find, in a sense, you know, I wanted to respect the contradictory nature of religious people in general, including myself. Um, I wanted to respect that people can be inconsistent, that they can change their minds several times in the course of a day, over the course of their life. Is that that they can hold that something that they're higher ideals of non-self and higher ideals of non-attachment and but at the same time be attached and not see and fall in love and, and be afraid of death and not see contradictions and that we're all in a sense human beings are all kind of fractured people trying to figure things out and how do i explain that that these stories you know, we, we can't boil them down into kind of one essence of Thai Buddhism is that one meaning or that these are this school of Buddhism or that school of Buddhism that it's not so neat when you get on the ground. It's not so neat when you shift through all these documents and hear these stories. And so this idea of a repertoire is really kind of what really fit for me. And I adapt this, this like the sociological kind of idea a little bit. Um, and so I found the passage where I say, uh, the idea of a repertoire, and this is Silver's um, sociology works in, in Israel, um, says, has the double advantage of connoting the ready enactment and concrete performance of practical and pra practical and practicable options, and of allowing for a measure of individual meaning and agency, and mobilizing and choosing spe a specific configuration of cultural resources while also stressing the public and publicly available nature of those resources. And that it's not, uh, this uh, this approach is not something that defines the ends of action, but provides the complements, uh, the components, I'm sorry, this is, is Swidler on it, the components or tools used to construct recurrent strategies of action. And so I go on to say that, I really want to respect the agency of some of that, though, the agency of Mandanak and the agency of the monks and the nuns and the lay people that follow them and practice Thai Buddhism in general. And that um, to maintain this agency without kind of classifying, this is rural Buddhism, this is elite Buddhism, this is urban Buddhism, this is Pali Buddhism, this is Mahayana Buddhism, this is Tantric Buddhism, kind of these huge kind of categories that never work on the ground, that this kind of idea of uh, each person having their own personal religious repertoire that's pulled on shared cultural resources, but recombined them in a unique way in each person um, really was helping me here. And so I say again later on that a study of repertoires has a distinct advantage of crossing boundaries of class, sect, and gender if centered on a particular place, both diachronically and synchronically. Um, and so that I'm looking for the resources, I say, that make up culture. 
um, and how people not are controlled by the cultural, but, but, and are not looking for meaning, but they're kind of constantly making meaning, um, in their daily life and constantly trying to figure it out. And that, um, if you study lots of people over kind of a course of time, you get to see what I say, these, those four things, graciousness, security, heritage, and, and abundance are shared by a lot of people, but in different ways. And that I don't mean to say that these are, these are the new categories of Thai Buddhism or new categories of, of Thai culture, but that there are things that most people kind of recognize and share and, and value in, in very, very different ways. To do that, what at the end of what you said, um, is that you were talking, well, I guess I was talking about the material culture of people actually, you know, hold and use. And, and that's, um, important in that, um, uh, you know, I want to see, and I lead into that really in the fourth chapter, um, and in the conclusion that, that people kind of, express their aspirations through objects and their beliefs are articulated through objects and um, objects are important statues, amulets, tattoos, shirts, um, uh, 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 holy water in a sense is sacred water, the sacred corpse oil, which I won't go into. And that these objects and the housing of them, the protecting of them, the decorating of them really articulates many of these stories and these in these values and and i found in the field that if you showed somebody a picture of something or you gave them an object and you asked them to talk about that they would talk in such more kind of um you know interesting and detailed ways than if you just asked them a question about their beliefs or you know that those questions never worked that they often end up talking about their feelings their beliefs their ways of looking at the world while talking about an object or in front of an object or while sharing, looking at something together. And, um, you know, I think we all do that. I think that, you know, some of your best conversations probably are if you go to a museum and you're standing in front of a painting with somebody else and you end up talking about that painting, but that leads to conversations about so many other things about what you value as beauty and what you value as, as meaning making in your life. And that's what I found in the field too, that we can't dismiss the material culture of Buddhist as, oh, well, these are just, you know, things aren't important. It's beliefs that are important. Well, not, not at all. I think that the things are primary in a sense and that the only way we get out beliefs and get at values in, in many ways is by allowing people to, to, um, don't discount the things, the actual physical things that they hold and cherish. Um, well, Justin, we've taken up a lot of your time, so I appreciate that. Um, but before I let you go, uh, maybe you could tell us a little bit about uh, what you're working on now or a future project you have in mind. Um, sure, yeah. Um, I'm, uh, I'm writing a book right now called, um, well, tentatively titled, it's only about a quarter written, um, called Wayward Distractions. And uh, it's... Uh, I have about nine different subtitles, <laughs> so, but um, I mean, I'm not sure what I'll do, but so far the one that won out this week is wayward distractions, things found by looking for Buddhism and um, what it is. It's um, three sections and nine chapters. This three sections are called people, places, and things. And I look at, um, I look at different figures um, in uh, Nepali, Japanese, and Thai Buddhism. 
um, and uh, what they can articulate. And I don't look just at monks or nuns at all. I look at like architects and um, um, uh, healers and things like this um, and talk about what are these things that are generally outside of Buddhist studies that we Buddhist studies has been ignoring um, and what are the people these, you know, kind of translators and, and traders and architects, the people who are kind of you know, we walk in their buildings and we use their things every day, but we don't study them as part of Buddhism. We generally only study monks and nuns. Um, and uh, things will, I mean, places will be about, I'm going to look at these kind of extra Buddhist spaces. Like I've been writing on Buddhist public parks and Buddhist amusement parks um, and uh, Buddhist museums. Um these places that a lot of lay people encounter Buddhism when they're not being religious necessarily. Um, and how are these both secular and religious places? And I look at places in again, India and Nepal, and, uh, Thailand and Laos, um, Singapore and, and Japan mostly. Um, and I've been traveling a lot to Japan lately and a lot to, um, uh, South Asia recently. And, um, uh, and I will continue to do this. This book will take a while. And, um, my Japanese, I'm starting to be able to read academic articles in Japanese very, very slowly. So it's taking me time. Um, and then, uh, things will be about, um, uh, art and, uh, uh a lot of modern art. I'm going to be talking a lot about modern Buddhist art and things. Uh, so, um, it's, you know, it's getting there. All the chapters are, are mapped out. Most of the research is done. You know, it'll have sabbatical next year. So it's hopefully it'll be done. And, you know, it's, uh, it's fun. It's certainly fun to write. Um, I'm writing a, one chapter right now on birds, <laughs> Buddhist birds. And it's really great. I mean, I love it. I don't think, I don't know if anybody will want to read it, but I certainly am having a good time. <laughs> I mean, it's really fun. Bird, birds are, I love birds. I personally, I really like birds. So this is fun for me to write about Buddhist birds. You know, up until this point in my life, I just enjoy birds. Now I'm actually. Well, I studying. think other people will, will share in your joy. The, well, uh, I, 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 I have my doubts, but, uh, but <laughs> at least I'm having fun. So, um, and, uh, you know, I hopefully I'll keep my job. So. Um, <laughs> well, well, good luck, and uh, thank you again for for joining us. I appreciate you you spending the time to talk to us. That was my interview with Justin McDaniel about his wonderful new book, "The Lovelorn Ghost and the Magical Monk: Practicing Buddhism in Modern Thailand," that just came out with Columbia University Press in 2011. I highly recommend the book especially for those interested in theory and methodology in the study of religion, and of course, Buddhist studies.